Doing the impossible is not something you make happen. It's something that you allow to happen. After conducting over 10,000 personal and group coaching sessions over the last decade, author and personal coach Jason Dries has unlocked the simple yet effective formula to accept and create success in your life on the most basic, instinctive level. In his latest book, Do the Impossible, Jason gives readers access to the same life-changing principles he provides in his personal coaching sessions. Ready to embrace success as a state of being? In this exclusive listener offer, get your copy of Do the Impossible for 50% off from the publishers at Bigger Pockets. To get your copy of Do the Impossible for 50% off any format, go to www.biggerpockets.com impossible50. That's 50% off any format, www.biggerpockets.com impossible50. Power blackouts. They happen every year, but guess what, blackouts? You've met your match. Say hello to Goal Zero, the leader in affordable home power backup systems and solar generators. Goal Zero's generators power your fridge, freezer, lights, Wi-Fi, TV, and more with clean power. Their home backup systems, like the Yeti 3000X, have no fuel, no fumes, no noise, and no maintenance. Just good, clean energy that keeps your home up and running. They offer a range of products and affordable price points, from power stations that can provide a half day's worth of power to solar generators and home backup systems that can keep you powered for one, two, or three days. Plus, they're all portable, so you can take your power with you when you go camping, tailgating, and more. So yeah, take that, blackouts. Our power is here to stay. Have peace of mind when blackouts hit. Go to GoalZero.com to learn more. Okay, I love that sound. There we go. That's the Shopify sound. Uh, It's the sound of another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Look, Shopify is a platform designed for anyone to sell anywhere, giving entrepreneurs, guys like myself who is an entrepreneur, the resources once reserved for big business, customized for your needs with a great-looking online store that brings an idea to life and tools to manage your day-to-day things, day-to-day business and drive sales. It makes your idea real, opens endless possibilities, and it's a journey, but that's the beauty of entrepreneurship. Uh Here's the deal. It makes it easy for anyone to successfully run their own business. It powers over 1.7 million entrepreneurs, guys just like me, from first sale to full sale. And every 28 seconds, a small business owner makes their first sale on Shopify. Get started by building, customizing your online store with no coding or design experience. Powerful tools will help you find customers, drive sales, and manage your day-to-day. It's got 24-7 support. You're never alone. It's more than a store. Helps you grow. Go to Shopify.com slash Donnie, all lowercase, for a free 14-day trial and get full access to Shopify's entire suite of features. Start selling on Shopify today. Go to Shopify.com slash Donnie right now. Shopify.com slash Donnie. So the book is the book and the TV series is the TV series, and they should not be the same. And so I'm very open in my collaborations. I do like to hear what other people Think. And, you know, I created the character and now it's the job of you know, Michael C. Hall or Richard Armitage or mm-hmm. next, the next series be Cush Jumbo to take that character and make it their own also. That's part of the, the experience. Welcome to On Brand with Donnie Deutsch. I am, of course, Donnie Deutsch and this is On Brand. And this is a show that's dedicated to a simple premise that... Everything and everybody today is a brand. Every product, every company, every institution, every religion, every politician, every athlete, every celebrity, 
everybody with a, anybody with a, uh, Instagram page that puts pictures up as a brand because a brand is a set of values and, and what something stands for. And we do two things on the show. First, we interview an iconic personal brand. Today, it's, uh, the brilliant author Harlan Coben. Harlan has sold only 75 million books. He's one of the two or three, along with Peterson and Grisham, uh, most important and prolific novelists of our time. And he's going to talk to us about all his projects, his streaming stuff on Netflix and his his books. And his up- he's just, he's, he's, you're really going to enjoy it. And we do something called Brands of the Week, where we uh, look at the brands that are kind of making and shaking what's going on in the world, which products and companies and people are up and down and why. Let's get right into the Brands of the Week. First brand of the week is Chris Christie. Here's, here's what I like about Chris Christie and why it's a brand up is he's kind of already going right at Trump. You know, he's given a couple of speeches. And when he asked about the elections, he said, we can no longer talk about the past and the past elections, no matter where you stand on that issue, no matter where you stand, it's over. Um, and I think what he's going for is he's really going to be one of the guys that stands up to Trump. There's going to be a business model for that going to the elections. And, you know, he was always a pugnacious, tough guy. You know, also when Trump kind of took a shot at him, and he said, I'm not going to go back and forth with Trump, but I will say when I ran for election in 2013, I got 60% of the vote. When he ran for election, he got he lost to Joe Biden. So, I mean, already taking shots at Trump. There might be a play there, but I give him a brand up for courage, and it, he's on brand because that's who he is. Uh, he lost his brand when he became very kind of submissive with Trump. So, brand up for Chris Christie. Brand up for Howard Stern. Now, Howard Stern came out. He, Howard Stern is one of my favorites. Anybody listens to this show, I think he's brilliant. He's one of the most important media figures of, of our generation. Um, he said he's going to launch a White House bid in 2024 against President Trump. Quickly knows he knows he'll beat his ass. And he says it, I don't think he says it to be sensational, but it's almost like if Trump runs, I'll run against him because I think Stern knows on some level by him going at Trump makes Trump a circus act even more than he is. And you put him in the same sentence as Howard Stern, not necessarily that Howard Stern would beat him, or whatever, but I think it's Howard Stern's kind of brilliant way of kind of marginalizing Trump uh, and making and, and sucking Trump into kind of going after Stern and, and making Trump even seem less serious than he ever is. So I kind of give a brand up to Howard Stern. There's a method to his madness. There always is. Brand up to Matthew McConaughey. McConaughey says that he's thinking about running for governor of uh, either Republican or Democrat in Texas, home state of Texas, and he says he wants to be aggressively centric. He gets a brand up for that set of words. He says that's a radical idea instead, and I think that's genius, but he's going to be aggressively centric. I love that. You know, sometimes people think that something in the middle is soft and that in order for it to have teeth or to be aggressive, it's gotta be far left, far right. And I think in this day and age, somebody that stakes out an aggressively centric position, so whether it's Matthew McConaughey or anybody else, he gets a huge brand up for introducing that set of words. And boy, he'd be an interesting candidate. I mean, but I think he's got the bright, that's where the country lives, by the way. That's what, it's unfortunate we have to, not unfortunate, we do have to go through the um, primary process where the 20% fringe on each side votes. But in reality, somebody who's aggressively centric will win a general election. So brand up for him. Big brand down for Kamala Harris. Uh, what a disappointment she's been. Uh, latest approval poll, uh, this is a USA Suffolk County poll that she's got uh, a 28% approval rating. Wow. I mean, even Trump, when he was at his lowest, was, you know, high 30s. Um, she's been, she's disappeared. Uh, she's invisible. It's been 153 days since her last sit-down interview with a major broadcast network. Um now, this is a problem for the Democrats, of course. In the same poll, two-thirds, almost two-thirds, 64% say they don't want Biden to run. And, uh, you know, including actually 
28% of Democrats. So one in three, almost one in three Democrats don't think Biden should run. Nobody likes Kamala Harris. So that presents, you don't have to be a political scientist to, to see that that presents a problem. But Kamala Harris also, it's come out that there's just tremendous infighting. This is the same problem she also had in her campaign. She doesn't seem to be a very good manager. And the West Wing doesn't seem to want to be dealing with her people, but it's she is she met, screwed up on the border in that interview. She hasn't been down there. She's been invisible. So something, what is wrong with uh, Kamala Harris? Brand down, Steve Bannon, uh, indicted by a federal, uh, uh, federal jury, turned himself in on Monday. Um, couldn't happen to a nicer guy. Uh, this is the first time in history that somebody who used executive privilege was actually indicted because guess what? He wasn't an executive. So you don't get to use executive privilege. To being near it doesn't give you executive privilege. But this is one of the scariest guys in the world. And if you heard the recordings of him the day before January 5th, the day before January 6th, talking about what tomorrow is going to be like and it's going to be big and it's going to be fast and it's it's going to be a big deal. I mean, dude, you belong behind bars. Here's another champ, Representative Paul Gosar. He's been on the show a few times and he's got a huge brand down. The Democrats are moving to censure him. It seems as if he put a uh, Japanese animation video, an anime it's called, and basically his face was on the head of a, a Japanese warrior uh, called Attack on Titan. With It was a character bearing two swords and subsequently attacking giant characters superimposed with uh, AOC's head and Biden's head, head, taking a knife, and I mean, taking a huge sword and going after Biden's head and AOC's head. We got enough violence in this country. We have, you know, and I love Steve Scalise, the... Uh, the majority, the minority whip who was like, had no problem with this. This was a guy who was shot at a softball game a couple of years ago, the Republican congressman. Um, you know, it, it, um, wow. You know what this is, this was, it's since been taken down. It was on his social media, but there you go. That's what he put up. So a face of him with two swords trying to behead AOC and, uh, Joe Biden. There you go. Um, here once one more, this is probably my biggest brand down for the week. Um, Ohio GOP Senate candidate defends running an ad about opponent's religion. He's Jewish. Everyone should know. That was the ad. Ohio Senate candidate Mark Pukita defended an ad about opponent Josh Mandel's religion. He was asked during a primary debate about his ad campaign released and pointed out Mandel is Jewish. The candidate responded that he felt the need to point out Mandel's faith so that voters don't get the false impression that he was a Christian. He goes, quote, unquote, all I did was in the ad was pointed out Josh is going around saying he's got the Bible in one hand and the Constitution in the other. He said, but he's Jewish. Everybody should know that though, right? Because if you have called a Bible in your hand, you're not Jewish. And, and he's speaking to churches, this Josh Mandel, who's actually in the lead. But a fucking ad that actually says, I want to make sure you guys all know that my, appoint, my opponent is Jewish. You got to know that. This is the year 2021. Um, uh, this is he, another quote from this genius. Are we serious? This is from the ad. Are we seriously supposed to believe that most Christian value Senate candidate is Jewish? This is what it says in the ad. I'm so sick of these phony caricatures. That's in the ad. That, okay, let's run on the he's a Jew campaign. Nice job for Republican hopeful, unhopeful Mark Pukita. He's way down in the polls, by the way. Uh, another brand down for Newsmax host Eric Boiling. I used to know Eric at CNBC. I liked Eric. He was a good guy. He's, he's gone off the rails. He was at Fox, heavy right wing. He, he lo lost his job at Fox over a scandal, a, a sexting scandal. And now he's at Newsmax, which is uh, makes Fox look like a, a liberal version of M MSNBC. And he basically is going after the Muppets. He says, he says, debate me, you cowards. He basically, after this is a, uh, after the Big Bird spoke out about getting a vaccine, 
He says, a day after freaking out Big Bear promoting vaccines and declaring Sesame Street a bunch of communists, boiling those is the first time these little felt communists have tried to infect the minds of our youngest and most vulnerable children. He wants to have a debate with them and he calls them little felt communists. That's Big Bird. This is what's on television. These, these, are, these are anchors. These are people that are getting airtime. Um, this is what he's saying. Um, brand down for algorithms. You know, I've said all along that one of the ways to get Facebook in check and, and, and social media in check is the, the dastardly part is the algorithms that kind of really kind of tease up. Basically, if you punch in something that's hate-oriented, then you're going to get more hate-oriented stuff back in it. It's kind of the sinister part. It's the way we can control this thing. And a bipartisan group of House lawmakers has introduced a, a companion to a Senate bill that would let people use algorithm-free versions of tech platforms. So you could sign up for them without the algorithms Obviously, the tech company is going to fight that bigly, bigly, as our ex-president used to say, but I salute that. So brand brand up for going after algorithms, Congress. Um, brand up for Google, parent Apple Bill, surpasses $2 trillion market cap. That's right. There's two other companies, Microsoft and Amazon, who, who, who basically actually, no, I'm sorry. Uh, it's Apple and Microsoft. Amazon is only at $1.7 trillion. Uh, $2 trillion. And, you know, they just, they've had incredible earnings, you know, like them or not, they keep going. And ABC, uh, Alphabet is the, is the parent company of Google, but $2 trillion market cap, got to give them a brand up. Brand up for U.S. casinos. U.S. casinos have their best quarter ever fueled by online sports bets. Looks like the casinos are going to have their best year ever. And this is for two reasons. There was so much pent up demand post, um, post, uh, pandemic and also online bank, you know, they're, they're, they've jumped in. They are, you know, they're, they're one of the, they got it right as a bricks and mortar business. They didn't, obviously you've got DraftKings in there and, and some of the other ones, but they didn't, they didn't kind of like acquiesce the throne and they've all got, whether it's Caesars or, you know, each one of them have their own online betting, you know, businesses outside of the hotels. Obviously they're affiliated with the hotels, but um, they're on pace to break the annual record of 43 billion set in 2019 as far as revenues for casinos. So there you go. Brand up for Britney Spears. Gotta love Britney. I love Britney Spears. I remember seeing, took, taking my oldest, who's now 35, and she was, I don't know, she was 13 or 14. And Britney was 16 at the time, opening for NSYNC at Old Westbury Music Fair. And I remember Britney, nobody knew who Britney was, but it was like, wow, this girl, this, this young lady's very talented. And she's been freed from conservatorship after 13 years. Britney Spears' conservatorship is over. A judge ruled last Friday. She's been under legal guardianship for 13 years after publicly dealing with mental health issues. It came to a head in 2008. And finally, it's, it's ended. Um, the court finds the conservatorship of Britney Jean Spears is no longer required. So yes, she did suffer from mental issues in 2008. That doesn't mean 13 years later, she should not have full uh, control over her finances and, and her life. So there you go. Big brand up for Kevin Costner, one of my favorite actors. Good guy. I met him, Kevin, once. Just a, a really down-to-earth guy. His show Yellowstone is basically the, was the most watched anything last week. Now, it's on Paramount+. Plus. So it's not like it's that's not on NBC. It's not even on HBO. It's just it's it's not on. It's a streamer, but it's not one of the biggest ones. And the, every week, the digital entertainment group re releases analysts for the movies most watched at home, rented on DVD or digital. And the TV series Yellowstone is the only movie or series in the top twenty. Um, basically, season four premiere, nine million people turned in. Uh, nothing's getting numbers like that. And what's interesting about it, it's part soap opera, part western. 
but it does not, it's not blue state at all. It's shot in Montana. Uh, it's set in Montana. It's not set in Manhattan. Uh, it's very comfort foodie-ish. There's something in it for everyone. And um, lesson to politicians and lesson to, go look at Yellowstone because that's what America is watching. Uh, bring up a Paul Rudd. Paul Rudd, one of my favorite actors. Last week, he was named uh, People's Sexiest Man Alive. I don't know if I would call him sexy. I mean, he's a good-looking dude, but, you know, whatever. Good for him. He's become one of kind of the most liked guys in Hollywood, so that's why it's good that he got it. He's in, actually, one of my favorite movies of all time that hasn't gotten it to do, Judd Apatow's uh, This Is 40. If you haven't seen it, it's amazing. It's kind of a, a spinoff from... Uh, uh, knocked up with Paul, the Paul Rudd and Leslie Mann characters kind of spin off into their own movies. Um, you know, people who grew up with him, young people, uh, not young people, people who, you know, saw him in Clueless in the mid-90s. And then there are younger people that kind of saw him uh, in Friends and Parks and Recreation, and of course, uh, as Ant-Man, and, and I think he's Ant-Man in The Avengers. Um, but he's a guy that's just incredibly popular. It was kind of an inspired choice, not a typical sex symbol. Uh, and he's also a guy that doesn't age. He's 52 and he looks the same day he does as his 30s. So good for him. Uh, big brand up for my friend, Brian Williams. Uh, Brian, one of the nicest guys around. Um, he's had enough. Uh, his contract is up at the end of December. Um, he, of course, had been a long time NBC anchor. I, I think the best anchor guy of all time. And then he turned into uh, the 11 o'clock hour on MSNBC into a hit. Um, he's leaving in his own terms. I think he kind of just felt he did what he all that was to do at MSNBC. Um, NBC is going very, very hard left. I'm not, I think Brian is a little bit more in his core as centrist. And I think he wants to kind of spread his wings a little bit. And whether he goes to Apple and does documentaries or goes to one of the other networks, I, I think it's a great move for him. And I salute him and a big fan of Brian Williams. Uh, brand up or brand down for GE, no matter how you look at it. You know, when I was kind of in the business world in the 80s and 90s, GE was the the business success corporate America story. Jack Welch was the CEO. It was a conglomerate. It was a roll-up. And in time, it proved to not be so successful, that you can't really build when you have no synergy between your businesses. If you go from, you know, aircrafts to light bulbs to healthcare to, it, it, it's hard to keep the stock price up because something's always going to be dragging it down. So they've kind of ending it. They split it into three companies, uh, an aviation company, healthcare company, and an energy company. Um, it's the right thing to do. But it's kind of the end of an era. One of them is keeping the GE name. I think um, I think the, the aerospace company is keeping the GE name. But it, it, it's a lesson of what corporations used to be and what they are now. You, you need, you know, obviously companies like Alphabet have different businesses, but they all kind of come back to the same farm. They're not buying healthcare businesses. So uh, an interesting lesson for where corporate America stands today. Um, and finally, Macy's, brand up for Macy's, raises hourly wage, to 15 bucks, rolls out college tuition to try and win workers. Look, companies are getting to be nice guys because they have to in that they can't get workers anymore. There's a work shortage, particularly in entry-level workers and, and jobs that are uh, a little lower down the totem pole as, as far as appeal. And, and they're offering uh, free college tuition as part of a plan to anybody goes. The, the average base will be above 17 an hour. The average total pay will be 20 an hour. Uh, it's an education benefit. Um, so good for Macy's. That's it. It's good time. It's good to be doing that. Smart for them, and it, it's good for the workers. And those are our brands of the week. Let's get to it with Harlan Coben. Harlan is uh, is just an incredible guy, as I said. One of the most important authors of our time. Um, I think 33 books, 75 million copies, 14 streaming shows, streaming series on Netflix. Let's take a listen to my interview with uh, Harlan Coben. I want to talk to you about ID Tech. 
When learning is fun, new concepts stick. That's why over 1 million parents have chosen ID Tech, the only STEM educator with 22 years of camp traditions. With ID Tech, your kids will fill learning gaps, explore topics never covered in school, advance quickly, and have fun doing it. Right now, they're offering a great deal. You can save $150 on weekly small group semesters or get started with one-on-one tutoring lesson for just 49 bucks. ID Tech is where kids and turn teens learn from the best. Their live instructors make learning fun with engaging courses in coding, design, game development, math, and even robotics. That's coding, design, game development, math, and even robotics. Regular school is not going to teach them in areas as much as they need to know. It's developed in partnership with top universities like MIT, innovators like Damon John and Dude Perfect, and tech giants like Roblox and Minecraft. With one-on-one tutoring, weekly small group semesters, there's something for every kid. Scheduling is fast and flexible with options guaranteed to fit your busy schedule. Go to IDTech, that's IDTech.com slash Donnie right now and use Donnie to save $150 on weekly small group semesters. For a limited time, you can also get started with a one-on-one tutoring session for just $49. That's code Donnie at IDTech.com slash Donnie to save $150 and your child can start learning online from a live instructor right now. IDTech.com slash Donnie. Want to really impress this holiday season? WSJ Wine is your key to holiday prep, dinner party to attend. Need a hostess gift? With WSJ Wine, you are never empty-handed. Look, this is when you want to keep your wine stock with new, with your wine rack stock with new and interesting wines. From the Wall Street Journal, WSJ Wine is the best way to find your new favorite wines from all over the globe. Holidays is the best time. I'm telling you, you got to use this. WSJ Wine Discovery Club brings award-winning wines right to your doorstep. Get direct access to the small batch handcrafted wines you need to try this holiday season. Look, if you need help with, with picking wines, it's a great resource. Even if you're a wine connoisseur, you're going to get some of that stuff, some of the wines you can't find anyplace else. Um, it presents the holiday top 12, the most wonderful wines of the year. Uncork them all and save under 25 bucks. WSJ Wine tastes over 40,000 wines a year and selects only 1%. Each wine includes tasting notes and, and food pairing tips. 100% satisfaction guaranteed. If you don't love a wine for a reason, you'll receive a refund, receive a new dozen from WSJ Wine's most talented winemakers every three months, about a bottle a week. Members save at least 20% on every case they choose to take while earning exclusive rewards and VIP upgrades. There is no obligation to continue. Now try the WSJ Wine Holiday Top 12 Plus, enjoy two bonus bottles and two wine glasses for $69.99, plus tax and shipping. Just text BRAND to 64000 to get the special offer. Text BRAND to 64000 That's BRAND to 64000 Terms apply. Available at www.wsjwine.com slash terms. Okay, I am thrilled at today's guest. Um, Harlan Coben is a legend. Uh, he is, to say he is a prolific writer is an understatement. 30, 33 novels, 75 million books sold. That's a lot of books. Um, 14 series on, on Netflix. I mean, every, I'm going to read in order according to Ranker.com, the, the, the best Harlan Cohen books. Tell no, I don't, I, I'm curious if you agree with this. Just tell no one, the woods, gone for good, caught, stay close, hold tight. Fooled me once, deal breaker, promised me, no second chance, just one look, fade away, shelter, backspin, the stranger, one false move, miracle cure, the final detail, seconds away, live wire. Those are the top 20 in order. Do we have- Wow. Yeah, but that's that's pretty crazy, huh? And that's just yeah. part of them. And that's just just the beginning. Welcome, sir. Thank you, Donnie. Good to see you, man. How are you? The other thing I want to add in is Harlan's become a good friend. Uh, we're part of the uh, old white guy fight club. Uh, <laughs> at- <laughs> 
And that, well, doesn't, we're fighting. that doesn't mean we're fighting. We actually go to fights in Vegas together, Hart and I, and a group of great guys, and we've gotten to know each other and we have a lot of fun. How's it going, man? How are you feeling? I'm doing good. Just, uh, just busy. You know, it's, uh, I keep thinking as I get older, I'll be able to work less and it ends up I, I'm working more, but that's good. But you talk about, it's interesting in, in reading a bunch of interviews you've done, you talk about that, like you're angry at yourself if you're not writing, you just don't feel like productive. You don't feel good. And like, you just, it's almost at this point, a drug for you. It, it, you know, life is, a, it sounds corny to be saying this life is about balance, right? So if you know, your, your relationship with your partner, your relationship with your children, how you're eating, how you're exercising, you know, reading time, all of that, and all of that can be good. But if I'm not writing well, everything gets out of balance. Yeah. Writing is as is an important part of that. So if I'm not writing well, the rest of all the rest of the stuff in my life starts to fall apart. I shouldn't say fall apart, but the balance is gone. And so when I if I if I go on vacation, for example, and I want to just relax and not think about writing at all, I'm not really happy unless I'm waking up at six or seven in the morning and at least getting a couple hours of work in. So I maintain that balance. Does that you know, make sense? Yes. There's a lot of guys. I mean, I, I'm not working full-time anymore. I sold my company. But when I was running my ad agency, even on vacation, I needed that hour to. Otherwise, I was. it was actually wasn't a vacation for me. I mean, it sounds counterintuitive because you're supposed to shut the whole thing off. So I, I get that. So are you ever not not writing? I'm not, a lot of times I'm not writing, but I'm always sort of thinking about it. I mean, my a lot of what I do is subconscious. A lot of times... By the time I sit down at the computer to write, it's already written in my head. So if I'm not at least thinking about it or beating myself up about it, I can't just dismiss it from my life. I find that more stressful. You know, a, a good friend of ours, uh, George Stephanopoulos, got me into to TM, Transcendental Meditation, a few years ago. And I, and I really like it. But the difference is the reason I like that one versus other ones is it doesn't ask you to turn your brain off. That just stresses me out. Yeah. Telling me not to think stresses me out. So for me, it's not a vacation if I can't think of some story ideas or ways I can make a show or a book better. That's my, you know, it's not really that I, I have the drug or whatever, but that's my level. That's where I kind of have to be or I'm not, I'm not in good shape. You've got win out in paper box, stay close, coming uh, this 1231 to um, in Netflix Tell me how your yeah. life has changed with the Netflix deal. I mean, you've got, it, it, it's it's insane. 14 series globally. I, I know you and I were together a couple of weeks ago and you were about to go out and, and actually be a, a showrunner on, I mean, so you are just hands-on. Talk to me about the experience, the collaborative experience of working with a group on network versus the kind of the really highly individualized experience of just sitting down and cranking it out and writing. Well, it's a, it's a, it's a really good question. I mean, Netflix has changed things in terms of television for, for novelists. You know, when I was first starting to look into doing TV back in the days of network, 22 episode, 41 minutes each episode, you have to start with a crime and end the crime. And, and that didn't really work for a kind of more novelistic approach, if you will. So these shows that I'm doing with Netflix, most are eight episodes. I've done ones that are six. I did one that was five. I did one that was 10. Um, I've had, I think, seven on right so far. Uh, Stay Close will be, I think, the sixth. And then the whole, whole tight sometime next year will be the, the seventh in four different languages. And it's been really freeing and kind of fun. In terms of, there's a lot of differences, of course. I mean, one is a collaborative process, TV and movies. And one is a solo process, writing a novel. 
I compare it to use a sports metaphor. Like when, when I do well with a book, if the book does well, it's like I'm a golfer or a tennis player, right? I'm, I'm there by myself. I get all of the glory or all of the blame. I win or lose. I stand there and get the trophy myself. When I do it with a, you know, in the case of The Stranger on, on Netflix or whatever, it's a team. I like it myself more as the captain of a World Cup soccer team. I don't care who scores. I want you all to score. I want you to go back to your premier teams and get better contracts. I want you happier in your life. I want to celebrate as a team. And what's been kind of interesting creatively about that is instead of one draining the other, I have found that one feeds off the other. So I'm naturally, despite what you might think from our trips to Vegas, I'm actually naturally an introvert. I gather strength by being alone. I can see, I, I mean, you're the most gregarious, friendly, likable guy, but I, I can actually see that. I, I actually can see that. You know, you, a lot of the guys at Netflix have given you kind of the ultimate compliment that they're used to working with writers and, and you can't touch this, you can't move this, you can't. And they say that when somebody has a great idea, even if it's moving away from what you're like, great, that's amazing. And that takes a lot of confidence and that's, that's unusual for somebody of your ilk. Well, the thing is also is I've learned very early. I know, first of all, you always hate when you ate it. When you ask a novelist, like, what was their inspirations? They all of a sudden have to like, oh, I, I was reading Proust. And yeah, <laughs> that's, that's such bullshit. I grew up watching Batman on TV. I grew up, Oscar and Felix meant more to me than Proust and Yates. I grew up with TV. We all did. For writers to say that of our generation, to pretend that TV or movies weren't influences, yeah. absolutely it's just completely unauthentic and ingenuous and disingenuous. So um, I always loved that kind of a thing, but I accept that a book should not, a book is a book and a TV series is a TV series. There's an old, a great story of James Kane, the guy who wrote Postman Rings Twice and Double Indemnity. And when they said, don't you hate what Hollywood has done to your books? He said, they didn't do anything to my books. They're right there on the shelf. So the book That's is the on. book and the TV series is the TV series and they should not be the same. And so I'm very open in my collaborations. I do like to hear what other people think. And, you know, I created the character. And now it's the job of, you know, Michael C. Hall or Richard Armitage or mm -hmm. next, the next series will be Kush Jumbo to take that character and make it their own also. That's part of the, the experience. Do you get a kick out of, because obviously when you're writing characters, whether it's Myron Bolidar or whoever, in your mind, they look a certain way, they talk a certain way, they... And it's got to be fascinating for you as an artist to see somebody actually bring it to life because it's not going to be exactly what you had. I mean, it, it, it's it's going to capture, obviously, the, the character, but everything else is going to be their artistry brought to it. And that's got to be a fascinating process for you. I, it, it's been, you know, and, and I think you have to accept that, that it's not going to be exactly what you envision because sometimes, believe it or not, that's even better. Sure. Sometimes I'll see a scene film that's actually better than what I had imagined, and sometimes it's not, but it's always different. And that's, again, part of the collaborative spirit of trying to do that, and, tr and you have to be able to let go. I don't really worry how slavishly devoted to the text the series is. I worry, is this series gripping? Is it moving? Are, are you binging this Netflix show in, in two or three days? And if you're not, that's, that's the key is to concentrate on making sure that story is is what it's supposed to be. Let's go back a little bit because growing obviously like all of us, how you grew up has has kind of informed what you do. You're you're a Newark guy. You're proud of yep. that. You love New Jersey. You love. You had a great saying about Newark. I'm not going to get it right. Uh, something about 
between Philly and New York City, and it, and it's got it. Help me out with that. It, it was really interesting. <laughs> I don't remember it either, but yeah, I mean, I, I was born in Newark. I was I was raised in Livingston, New Jersey, which is about seven miles outside. Still live in, in different New Jersey. world. Different world. Livingston and Newark, though, very different. Yes. Yeah. What I've learned actually is um, the more specific I am in my work the more universal the appeal. And this is something that a lot of people don't I get. I read that. That's so counterintuitive that you, 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 you paint New Jersey in such detail. And the feeling is not, oh, this is not going to be relevant here, that the more, the deeper you go, the more real. I, I was fascinated by that. Yeah. I, I mean, the books are, I sound so braggy, but the books are in 45 languages. My biggest country relative to population is France. I've sold, according to my publisher's last numbers, 20 million French novels. I don't say that to brag. I say these are books that take place sure. in New Jersey yeah. that are somehow resonating. And what I've learned is the more specific you are, the more universal the appeal. This is similar to what you did with advertising. You know, when you started to chase saying, you know what, we got to figure out a way to appeal to, to all X, things, to all people. Yeah, you miss it. Yeah. That's when the brand loses what it has. I have a close friend who, who, who worked at the, or owned the, the clothing line, Lily Pulitzer, which is very specific. It's very pink and green, and you've probably seen it in Palm Beach or sure. whatever. Whenever they would try to expand it and say, you know, we got to appeal to the person in Peoria or whatever, they lost it. You, so my point is, is that the more specific you are, the yeah. more you true that thing, the more universal your appeal is going to end up being. El condado de Santa Clara está pasando por una emergencia de sequía extrema. Valley Water le pide a la comunidad que limite el riego de jardines a un máximo de dos veces por semana. Trabajemos juntos y digámosle sí, ahorrar agua. Visite watersavings.org para más información. I want to talk to you about LinkedIn marketing. Let's pretend for a moment you're about to launch a campaign. It tested well. Your entire team is happy. Everything's going to plan, except for that one thought in the back of your head. How do I ensure that people I want to target will be in the mindset to receive my message? The answer LinkedIn, because when you market on LinkedIn, your message reaches people who are ready to engage with your business. And that means your advertising campaign will work as hard as it can as soon as you can launch it. Over 62 million decision makers are on LinkedIn and they're thinking about their business. It's one of the many reasons more than 78% of B2B marketers rate LinkedIn as the most effective social media platform at helping their organization achieve specific objectives. LinkedIn can help you reach your short and long-term business goals. They offer tools for brand building and lead generation. You can engage people you already know based on who's visited your site or who you've contacted in the past. You can even customize your campaign based on the action you want consumers to take. Advertising on LinkedIn, the world's largest professional network, can help you reach your marketing goals. Do business where business is done. Get a $100 advertising credit toward your LinkedIn campaign. Visit linkedin.com slash Donnie, linkedin.com slash Donnie, terms and conditions. El condado de Santa Clara está pasando por una emergencia de sequía extrema. Valley Water le pide a la comunidad que limite el riego de jardines a un máximo de dos veces por semana. Trabajemos juntos y digámosle sí, ahorrar agua. Visite watersavings.org para más información. Supply. All right, so you've grown up, you, you play high school ball. Uh, yeah. You had kind of, you had an interesting childhood in that uh, you, I, I want to hear about the satyrs with a hundred people with all the, I, I mean, it just, it sounds like you had a really, uh, a lot of influences going on there. Yeah. Well, my parents died fairly young. My dad was 59. My mom was about 60. I say about because her real age was kept a secret that the Pentagon would, <laughs> would sort of envy and her last request right. was not to put her birth date on her tombstone. So um, we grew up in Livingston, New Jersey, a fairly extended family. My, her siblings were around. Her parents were around. We did the, the Jewish Seder thing um, all the time. And it was with a group of the, my grandfather's friends. 
that would gather, and they would probably be over 100 people there um, when we did it. So in many ways, my upbringing was sort of typical. There's a great quote, um, oh my God, from Flaubert. It's gonna, I'm going to space out on it, but it was sort of like, be boring and bourgeois in your real life so you can be violent and original in your work. That's you. I think that kind of applies to me. I've been married to the same woman for many, many years. I have four kids myself. We live a sort of, quote unquote, boring bourgeois life here in the suburbs of New Jersey. And I think that's allowed me to go violent and original in my work. I'm going to take a, a, a personal a pat on my back, and we're not going to go into details how I've a major, I personally had an influence that's made your life just a little, one hundredth of one percent less boring, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna take credit for that. But we'll, we'll say, there's we'll, no question we'll, we'll about say, it. We'll save that for another day. Uh, so you're, you're, you go to college, you play ball, and you meet your wife, who's also playing ball. Yeah, we were both collegiate basketball players at Amherst College, Division Three. I do brag that I was an all American collegiate all American basketball player, but what I leave off of that sentence was I wasn't picked all American by. Uh, Sports Illustrated or something like that. I was picked All-American by the Jewish Post and Opinion of Indianapolis. There you go. There you go. Well, by the way, that's that's real stuff, okay? I mean, that's, let's let's not minimize that. Oh, yeah. It was me, um, Heshi, and Moish, and two guys. <laughs> a couple of guys from Yeshiva. Right. Basketball and made a team, I think, that year. I love it. I love it. And so you you start working, and you actually went into, you, you had dreams of being a writer. You wrote in college. You and I have talked about this. But then you go into your grandfather's business for a few years. Yeah. He was in a travel business sending people, sort of a glorified travel agency. It was a travel club where we sent people on, like, you know, those trips that used to be popular where you put 52 people on a bus in Italy, and you do Rome, Florence. Mario Venice. Perillo, right. The Mario yeah, Perillo exactly. tours. Yeah, They're okay, very right, similar right. to Perillo-type tours, but right. we were doing it all over the world. And so uh, when I graduated college, I applied to law school and I've been accepted. My grandfather talked me into deferring a year and then two years. And then I stayed there and ended up working there eight years while I was trying to write. And tell me about the first book. Tell me that. Well, this is the thing that I try to recommend to people. I mean, for some reason, people think they have to quit their job to write. I had two novels published while I was still writing. And if I believe in the goldfish bowl effect of writing. So if you give me a year to write a book or six months to write a book or three years to write a book, You'll fill it up. Yeah. it's going to be the same book. Yeah, It's just yeah. going to be, I'm going to work. So if you're working full time and a book would normally take you 12 months to write, maybe it'll take you 14 months to write. It's not going to take you four years to write unless yeah. you're, you know, the, the thing with writing is uh, not to beat people up or give excuses, but you have to find the time to write. And if your life is filled with other things that, than, than being a writer, then you're not meant to be a writer. It's, like, anything. it's like everything. You, you're not going to be successful at anything unless you pour yourself into it. I mean, that, exactly. that, that, that's... And so yeah. even if I was working full time, when I came home, I wrote. When I woke up in the morning, I wrote. Every lunch hour, I wrote. And so, and I thought about it subconsciously. Maybe I wasn't as good at my job as I should have been, but it was niggling in my brain the whole time. So I wasn't writing that much slower when I was working full-time than, than I do now. And you actually had a few books. You, you, you're, yep. you, you made a lot of money off your first book. I think it was a $5,000. Was it a $5,000 yeah, advance? Well, it was less than that, but my first Myron Bolotar book was 5,000. Okay. I used to, I said, but I, but I don't want to brag. I was $5,000 in the first Myron book, but by the fourth Myron book, and again, I don't want to brag. You're up to I six. Was up to 6 yeah, there, there you go. There you go. And you were anything but an overnight success. You were grinding it out. You were grinding it out. And then you hit with one. Talk, talk to yep. me about that. 
Well, it was, you know, it was a slow move up the ladder for a while. After the fourth Myron book, I moved into hardcover. I, I, I met up to, I think, a six-figure, a low six-figure deal. And then um, when I left my Myron Bolotar series and wrote a book called Tell No One, some of you may have seen the French film of, um, that was done by Guillaume Canet, too. That was the breakout book. That was the overnight change on my 10th novel. Now, why? Why? 30, you know, 30 novels into this, you're, you're right. If you look back now and you were teaching a course, why would you say that was the one that popped? Well, a couple of things. One, you just read my rankings and Tell No One, uh, which came out in 2001, is still ranked as my number one book. I think it's because the breakout book. Right. One, it had a really great, I mean, the, the movie poster said this, um, Dr. Beck's wife was murdered eight years ago. Today, he got an email from her. Yeah. So, you know, it's a story of a man whose wife is murdered. Eight years pass. He can't get over his, her death. He gets an email. He clicks a hyperlink. He sees a webcam and his dead wife walks by. You're in, right? You're yeah. already in. Yeah. So that was, that was part of it. The other thing was, despite the fact that I got very nice reviews and won all the mystery awards and all that, the Myron Bolotar series was marketed as a sports agent solves crime. So it's going to be limited and by nature. They're exactly. They're, they're so, bad, by the way, bad, bad marketing. Bad, bad marketing. Exactly. Yeah. Bad branding from the beginning yeah. on that. And then after people read Tell No One, they all went back and read Myron Bolotar. And now Myron sells as well as what sure. we call the standalone novels. I have a series novels and I have standalone novels. Yeah. When you read that off, it was about 50-50 in the top 20 of which was standalones and, and which one were series. So that was part of it, too, is that you couldn't get people who didn't like sports or a lot of the, you know, mystery writers, by and large, are a female audience that is not young. So to get them to read a book that you're advertising as a sports agent, even though it had nothing to do with sports, sure. I think limited it. Yeah. You needed Deutsch advertising at the time to, to, That's it. to re- I don't know why re- I wasn't on you earlier. Re- re- rebrand that. You're... <laughs> It, it, there's not that your books are very, very different, but there are similarities as usually somebody in a suburban setting, something pops from the past to kind of test their character or metal. And yeah, I'm interested. Why? Why, why? why is that the foundation of so much of, and, and I, just as a reader, I could say, okay, well, here's why, but I want to hear from you. Well, there's a couple of things. I mean, I do two different, I do two different things. So the Myron Bolotar series is a sort of a classic detective series. That's 11 books. We can leave those over there. Right. I'm a young adult that's in a series, leave those over there. But for the most part, there's two things. I love the ordinary man and the extraordinary circumstance, be it man or woman. I've had leads both genders. So it's a little bit Hitchcockian um, in that degree, in that right. And I think you will relate to somebody who's going through the same things that you are going through, that you understand and relate to it. The other thing that I do is where Agatha Christie had murders, I prefer missing people. Because if somebody's missing, it creates this tension, right? You can be made whole. If somebody you love has gone missing, maybe they're alive. If you find them, you can have total redemption, where if they're dead, you can solve the crime, you can get get justice. But that hope, like, right, think of somebody right now that you love dearly and they vanished. The chances of finding them, even years and years later, is extraordinarily compelling and interesting to write about. I think part of that, not to get too serious, was the death of my father was so devastating, I was always sort of dreaming or quasi-fantasizing ways that he could still be alive. And so that's what I do a lot in the novels. I think that's why you care enough that you want to keep reading through the twists. Wow, that's, I, didn't, I never put that together about your, about your dad. You also talk about when you sit down and you write, you, you basically, you have the ending, 
Yep. You have the characters at the beginning, and it's just that's what allows you. And everything in between is you're taking tours, you're drifting, you're going, you're you don't you know you're going to Tokyo, but right. you don't know if you're stopping in the Bahamas or or New Jersey or whatever. And that that's that's I found that fascinating. That's exactly right. I mean, I know a couple. I I compare it to driving from our home state, my home state of New Jersey, to California. I may go Route 80. I may go via the Suez Canal or stop in Tokyo first, but I usually end up in LA. Um, what's good about that is I can then move off that road as long as I know where that road is ending. E.L. Doctorow has one of my favorite quotes on writing, my second favorite quote on writing, where he says that writing is like driving at night in the fog with just your headlights on. You can only see a little bit ahead of you, but you can make the whole journey that way. I'll add that I know where that journey is going to end, and that helps me. So I come up with the concept, the, the twist, you know, the beginning I just said to you for tell no one. Sure. Well, okay, it's cool. His wife, who died eight years ago, is on a computer screen. How can that be? Now I come up with how that can be, and then I start and I try to figure out how I'm going to get from A to B. I loved it, and I related to it the way you write or as far as where you write. When I was a young copywriter, and I'm not putting myself in the same universe as you, but just the creative process, I never could sit right at home. I would remember I'd go to, remember the Horton Hardart automats, you know, where the, uh, sure. you know, okay. So I used to go in the morning because they were just a, very, a lot of stragglers. I don't want to say homeless people, but very kind of desperate type of people there. There was Count Basie music playing in the background. It was visual. Like when I, and then I'd go to another coffee shop and then I'd go here. And I found interesting about you is that you're, or you'll sit, you, I was fascinated to read about how you started, you were doing well in Uber. So you just kept taking Ubers to write there, but that you'll always find different places to write. Yeah, I'm not, uh, most writers you will talk to, uh, and by the way, if you ask, writers are like we of the Hebrew faith, ask 10 of them how they do it, you get 11 different answers. Sure. So yeah. with that caveat in mind, I've found um, normally, and again, this has changed actually since COVID, but normally I found that I use up places. So I will be in one coffee shop for a while and it'll be working. It's like when a, a, an athlete's wearing the same socks or whatever, and then it stops working. I grow at the end of the book, I always grow a playoff beard, you yeah. know, and I don't shave for a while. You say the, so end, come, the end comes pouring out, though. The, the, once the you get the end, always, it's just, um, yeah. When yeah. it comes. Yeah. I mean, sometimes it could be blocked for a long, long time. But when it comes, the last day is usually a 40-page day, 40, four, zero pages straight. But I've been thinking about those pages. This is what I was talking about thinking before I write. I've been thinking about those pages from for nine months to a year. So it's not quite as just out there as you think. I've been picturing it for a long time. And when I can see I can reach the ending, nothing stops me. It could be 24, 48 hours straight, you know, with a break to do yeah. whatever, but um, of just sitting in a room writing all the time. So when you, and I'm going to also go back to my creative process when I was creating ads. So when you and I are talking, okay, we're sitting on a plane, we're talking, we're bullshitting, you're, you're writing. I'm not saying based on something we're talking about, but you're there's a character you're developing, or there's some you just got a plot twist in your head, and so that that never turns off. I'm assuming. It, it that's true, and I, frankly, I, and I worry about this. And as a, as my friend, he can tell me, I worry that sometimes I am rude because I do drift off. No, I mean, I I've do. never, ever, ever, ever seen that ever. Oh, nothing, that's, nothing that's close to it. Really nothing close. I would describe you as the opposite. Like the, you're the kind of guy when you're talking to, you make the other guy feel like he's you know the most important guy in the world. So no, I've never seen that. I've oh, that's that. good. Well, a lot of my, some other ones have commented because I do. I'll, I'll all of a sudden go, oh, wait a minute. You know, like I'll think of that plot twist and my you know, my kids are kind of be up. Dad's off in La La Land or, you know, Harlan Land or whatever it is again. But also when we're hanging out with the guys that we're hanging out with, 
the stories that we're hearing, I'm always like, wow, I, I got to figure a way. I don't even know how to make this realistic. If I just wrote that story, you would throw the book across the room and say, that's the most unrealistic thing I've ever heard in my I'm life. I'm so terrified a Vegas incident <laughs> involving me is going, is going, is going to, I, I just have this bizarre feeling. Like, wait, there was Donnie and there he was. And then he That's was right. there. I'm not even trying how I'd capture you, Donnie. I'd yeah. have to, you know, but it is weird that sometimes when we're on those trips or we're talking or, or whatever, I realize I have to fictionalize it, not just because I don't want people to know who I'm talking about, but because no one would buy. But no one the would believe it. Is yeah. actually, it's an old saying, but the truth is actually much harder to buy. Fiction has to be more realistic than reality. Yeah, I mean that's what was so. We'll talk a little bit about politics. That's what was so insane about the Trump presidency. You couldn't, yeah. you couldn't sell that. It was too broad. It was too big. It was too unbelievable. Uh, right. And Everything it was just. So who's uh, so in 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 Myron? How much? This is a question you've been asked a lot. What what? How much of Harlan is in there? Well, again, writers don't like to admit this, but a lot. I mean, yeah. he's me with wish fulfillment. I mean, I, as I just mentioned, I was a collegiate basketball player, but I wasn't drafted in the first round like Myron. He's smarter. Right. He's funnier. He's faster, he's stronger, he comes up with the better line because he has time to. Um, our backgrounds are fairly similar, so he's a little bit of me with wish fulfillment. But at the same time, um, what I did when I created him was I, um, I created a, a real tension between us that has made the series better. Again, not to get too serious, but when I created Myron, um, I gave Myron loving parents. Um, he's still alive and still around in the first book. In fact, he even lives, still lives in her basement. And it was sort of uh, what I imagined my life would have been with my relation with my parents would have been had they survived. So sometimes I admit I get melodramatic and a little maudlin during those, circum those situations, this part of the book, but tough. That's my therapy. If you don't like them, skip them. Yeah. Most people actually like it. And I thought it was a, also an interesting idea because most of the, the time that detective or lead character doesn't get along with his parents. Myron is a great loving relationship with his parents. So I'm very envious of him that he gets to enjoy. And the parents are very much based on my own that I don't. On the other hand, Myron's whole goal in life is to get married and move to the suburbs and have kids and the barbecue in the yard and the basketball court and all that, which I have and Myron doesn't. So in certain ways, so, he's aspirational for you. In certain ways, you're aspirational for him. Exactly. And that tension has helped it not be where Myron and I are the same, but that our lives have gone in different directions. And also, I've been writing Myron since he was about 27 or 28. He's now in his mid 40s. Yeah. I'm a little older than that. Because I right. age fast, I age normal time. Myron, I guess, age yes. slower. But yeah. his life has not worked out as well as mine has, quite frankly. Yeah. So his life has not, you know, has gone through things that I haven't gone through, and vice versa. So it's been interesting. Well, take me through your day so far. We're doing this. It's four in the afternoon, so you've you've had a chunk of a day to work. Take me through your creative day today. Well, today I finished my the, the novel called The Match that'll be out comes out in March. That's the next one that comes out, and that'll be out in March. So I finished that novel a couple of weeks ago. So part of what I'm doing is scratching out, starting to scratch out the beginnings of another novel. It's a little bit like boxing. We were just talking about boxing. And so when I finish a novel, I have nothing left. I have thrown every mm. punch. If I came up with a good idea, it's in that novel. I have nothing. So it takes me a few weeks, maybe a month or two, of thinking I will never be able to lift my arms up again before I'm starting to re be ready to train it and look at a new opponent. And that's sort of where I am there. Um, but today was a big TV day. I, I, did a, I just finished filming a pilot here in New Jersey for an Amazon Prime show. Um, and so today I was in from 8 a.m. till about 2 p.m. I was in the edit room 
uh, with virtual edit room editing this pilot series, this pilot episode down. So that was the big thing that I was doing today. And then my book was released in Poland. Win was released in Poland today. So I was on a Zoom with the Polish readers and Facebook uh, Polish event. So, so that that, that, what's what's what I'm so envious about you is that you just there's so many facets to what you're doing and to particularly now that obviously uh, Netflix has gotten into it and in, in the the and you you recently were shooting in Livingston High School in your your yeah. old uh, that must have been fun as shit huh it was weird I mean it was a it was it, I'll tell you quickly that so we also filmed um, part of the scene was this Mickey Bolotar's the Young Adult series he lives in the in his basement bedroom that I had based off of my own, but I'd written it for Myron starting and I started writing it in 1993 or 94 and they reproduced it on set. And there was a day we were filming there. And when everybody left, I just laid in the bed for like a half hour and just looked around the room. Wow. It's one of the things, again, I don't, I don't want to get corny on you, but if when I go on set and I think that I, and I see 200 people or however many people are on a set bringing an idea to life, I think to myself, I had this silly little idea in the corner of my room in Ridgewood, New Jersey, and now I could be in Paris making a TV show and all these wonderful people are trying to bring it to life. If, if you don't get jazzed about that as a writer, you're in the wrong business. I mean, if you don't get a little choked up about sure. that, then along, you shouldn't be doing it. Along those lines, and I, I ask, obviously, to interview a lot of successful people, and I'm always curious because most very successful people have not a sense of fraudulence, but sense for, but like kind of like, wait a second, who, somebody's going to tap me on the shoulder and say, this is not real. And, 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 and that's the thing that with you drives you to every time you're writing a book, turning to your wife and going, this sucks. And she like just rolls her eyes at you and go, shut up. I can't listen to this anymore. But do you have that kind of like, how the fuck did I get here? Not that you don't deserve it. Not that you haven't killed you. You, you, you could list a hundred reasons why, but yeah. there's still that visceral thing, that sense of like, someone's going to find me out. I don't know any artist who doesn't have the imposter syndrome to some degree. Yeah. I always say only only um, bad writers think they're good. Yeah. If you have a writer on your show who thinks everything he writes is brilliant or good, you know, or, or whatever right away, their stuff probably sucks. I mean, I'm friendly with a lot of your biggest writers that that you know, and I don't yeah. know any of them that don't have some sort of insecurity issues that don't aren't driven by the fact that they think they suck who on some days think they're we're somehow pulling the wool over somebody's eyes. I don't know any, any really good actors who don't think that. I don't know any good painters, artists. I don't really know too many creatives who aren't yeah. in some way driven by that self-doubt. Yeah. And most of the ones who really think that they're great usually aren't. It's usually the, the you know the pompous ones that are that yeah. we both know a lot of. And I, and I think it's the same for business or anything else. It's not necessarily even staying humble. There is just some, there's an insecurity there that, that drives, drives me to, yeah. to do yeah. better. Yeah. I want to just broaden it out a little bit because you and I talk politics and I'm curious from a fiction writer, how you, because you're, you're looking at as real life things play out with kind of a different eye. And I'm right. curious your perception of the arc that we're going through as a country right now, where, where do you, obviously you don't have a crystal ball, but as you're, if you, if all these characters were being written and as you said, you always kind of see the ending, where do you see us headed? Uh, I I, tr I really try hard to not <laughs> because <laughs> I don't see that. All I can tell you is the, the good news is we're going to be wrong. Whatever we think is wrong. Yeah. Uh, you, there was no one who saw Trump coming. There was no one who saw that, you know, we're going to be staring at this 12 hours a day. Yeah. Right. No one. No one saw anything coming. No one saw it correctly. No one saw it. You know what? 
a, a man in Tunisia is going to set himself on fire and start what we started off calling the Arab Spring with the Arab uprisings. Nobody saw any of that. So all I can tell you is my favorite saying is a Yiddish expression, man plans and God laughs, mm-hmm. that we're going to get it wrong. And I take some solace in that because it doesn't look good, does it, right? No, no. It's a crazy time. And if I had told you a few years ago any of this was going to happen, you would have smacked me in the back of the head. If you had told me that you know, we would have people that were all of a sudden this or that, and I don't want to get right or left wing on it, um, I would have thought we were nuts. So, you know... The problem for me as a writer is I got to compete with this stuff. You yeah. know what I mean? And I have to make sure that I'm gonna I'm a fun escape from it. Like people will say, "Are you gonna write about the pandemic?" Not right now because you want to. My job is to let sure. you escape. Yeah. When the yeah. pandemic first came out, I had a book coming out, and I had the TV show The Stranger out on Netflix, and people said, "Oh, you know, it was an escape." I wanted to be. I want to be the escape from yeah. that stuff. So I don't know where this is going. I am shocked by it. Um, I have also found out that in our years, and neither one of us is our kids anymore, that I've been naive to how awful people are. Yeah. I really have. Yeah. And, and even, even I'll be honest, the January 6th insurrection, I still thought that it was a bunch of knuckleheads who had been riled up or whatever else. But now that we're seeing that it was really more planned out, sure was. even I, who am completely cynical about all this, can never, can't believe the everyday depravity that we seem to reach. I still can't comprehend it, that I've been naive to how awful people can be. I know, I know, that's sad. And that's the end of my rant, I apologize. No, I I love it, I wanted to get, just to take a few more minutes of your time. If I would have told you after your seventh book, okay, great, you know, there'll be 33, and after selling 10 million, you'd sell 75 million, you'd go, great. If I would have told you seven or eight or nine years ago, oh, guess what, you're gonna have this whole new thing in streaming and whatnot. So now fast forward 10 or 20 years, I'm going to venture to say, the little I know you, if I told you, okay, there'll be another 20 books, another 100 million sold, but there'll be no new adventures, that wouldn't be enough for you. That I, I, I think that that you're, you're, we can't imagine it now, just like we wouldn't imagine the streaming thing. But are you anticipating that? You know, first of all, when, when you, if someone had told me the, those years ago, I'd be here right now in the position that I'm where I am now. I, I wouldn't have believed it. I was yeah. in France maybe four or five years ago. And they said it was one of your goals to be hitting the book at number one in France. I'm like, dude, that's so far beyond anything <laughs> I ever dared dream. Yeah. Everything in my career has been, I was just, you know, this is the other thing I would recommend to people when you're, you know, you're talking about branding and all that. I always was ambitious, but I was realistically ambitious. So it was first like, if I could just have one novel published, wouldn't yeah. be great. Then, well, can I just have two novels published? I'd love to see two just to prove it wasn't a fluke. Well, I wonder if I could just scratch out a living. I don't want to make a lot of money, but just so I'm not embarrassed. You know, if I could just one time skim the bottom of the bestsellers, one day be 15 on a yeah. time. If I could one day hit, so you just keep doing that. So you feel the satisfaction when you reach it, when you reach your goal, but you're then reaching for the other thing. Yeah. So my career has gone so much better than I could have ever imagined that I would never you know, it would be bad karma in every which way to sort of question that. But that's how I did it. I never dreamed any of this would happen. I just, my goals were always modest, but one Reachable, step. Right? And you kept and, hey, so I, don't, I have no idea what the next thing is. If you tell me I can keep writing books and making TV shows, my goal is always to make each show and each book better than the one before. Right. If I hit that or not, I don't know. But I'm always trying to make the next one better. And I don't worry about the other stuff. Or, you know, I don't worry like, because I can't control it. I understand what I can control. Like when, when our business is going through all these things saying, well, you know, is the ebook 
or is it going to be audio or is it going to be paper? I'm like, as long as I'm the content side. Sure, that's as it. As long as I write you a great they story. There will always be content. content. It, do, it doesn't, matter. doesn't matter. All right, final question I ask this to everybody. What's the Harlan Coben brand? I like to think it's um, suspense, page turning, binging, staying up all night to read, but with heart. I mean, that, that the reason that, that it's done through by, by caring about what you're reading about and empathy rather than just thrills and, and, and shocks. That's the Harlan Coben uh, book brand, author brand. What's the personal brand? Personal brand is uh, Family Man. I mean, I just, yeah. uh, you met my two, sure. two of my four kids on that trip. They're my pride and joy. And um, I'm proud of the job that, I'm proud of them. And, and I, that's the, by far the most important thing that, um, that they were able to be there with us this, this particular time and that I'm able to continue. Awesome. Harlan Coleman, you are a gentleman, a scholar, deserving much praise, a good friend. And thank you. I know how busy you are for taking time out. for. Matt, I love it, Donnie. Always great to talk to you, my man. Thank I'll, you. I'll see you soon, my brother. I hope you guys enjoyed today's On Brand, uh, especially my interview with um, Harlan Colbin. He's amazing. Remember to rate, re review, and subscribe anywhere you get podcasts, Spotify, Apple, anyplace else. That's rate, review, and subscribe anywhere you get podcasts. And watch our videos on YouTube. And please uh, subscribe there also and give us your comments and rate and review. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. And we hope you guys have a great week. Enjoy your week and stay safe. Have you noticed changes in the places and spaces around you? What does a 15-minute city look like? How are companies preparing for life in the metaverse? Check out Changing Places, a podcast that explores the future of our built environments. Join me, Miriam Sobe, in deep dive conversations with experts who are working to make spaces better amid changing ideas, trends, and social issues. Follow Changing Places wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Jim Jeffries. I have a podcast out called I Don't Know About That. Each episode is a different subject. We bring an expert on and I say everything I think I know about that subject and then they correct me. Join in, listen to the podcast, you'll have a laugh and you might learn something. Follow, rate and review I Don't Know About That with Jim Jeffries. Now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen. You can also catch video releases each week on YouTube.